If you like Weirder Than Code, you should check out the Transatlantic Cable podcast from Kapersky Lab. They condense the most interesting InfoSec and cybersecurity news in 20 minutes or less. Check it out and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Greater Than Code, episode 113. I'm John Sowers, and I'm introducing Christina Marillo. Hi, John. Thanks. So happy to be here. It's been a while, so happy new year to everyone. And I'd love to introduce the amazing Coraline. The amazing Coraline. I like that. It makes you sound like a circus <laughs> performer or a stage <laughs> magician. <laughs> okay, how about the fantastic Coraline? Still the same. I love it. <laughs> Okay. We have a really amazing guest with us today. I met him at Uruco in Vienna earlier this year. He really impressed me. Um, he gave an amazing presentation that I hope we get to talk about today. So uh, I'm happy to welcome Amr. Amr is an African-Egyptian native who crossed continents to work with his passion in digital environments. Amr's interests span technology, tech communities, politics, and politics and tech all enriched through various software engineering roles in Egypt, Hungary, and Germany. Amr, welcome to the show. Well, greetings, everyone, and a happy new year for everyone. Thank you for having me here. So, Amr, as you know, as a long-time listener of the show, I'm sure you are a long-time listener of the show, I hope. <laughs> um, we always start with a very simple but loaded question. What is your superpower, and how did you develop it? I always love how you refer to this question as a super simple question, <laughs> because for me, it's super not simple question. I mean, if you ask me about a superpower, I would never refer to it as that. I would more call it like an acquired skill. The one thing I believe I'm a bit capable of is like seeing the bigger picture or trying to add more context, especially when it comes to social aspects. I tend to not get lost into trivial details and always being able to try to take one step backwards and see everything from a bigger aspect. And if you ask me how I think I acquired this skill, I think I have a bit of a diverse experience in terms of context, in terms of background, in terms of like experiences even in job or career-wise or non-career-wise. And I think the most important or the life-changing point uh, of mine is the major change in my context moving from a culture to a culture. So as I mentioned, as you, as you already mentioned in my bio, I, I grew up in Cairo in Egypt, where most of my life I basically checked all these checks for privileges, right? So I'm a cisgender, a straight male. I come from this middle to high class family in Egypt. I belong to a Muslim family, which is the majority in my country. And I mean, this is shameful to say, but I have a, a lighter shade of darkness, which still in Africa considers to be a privilege. <laughs> and I remember like when I was younger and I was faced by my friends who are less privileged. So uh, let's say the Christian community in Egypt or uh, the, the LGBT community members, uh, they always try to complain about things or, or mention uh, bad experiences they go through. And I always had this thought of, I totally have the sympathy. I totally understand what you're talking about, but... I sometimes felt that they are oversensitive or maybe they are like making a bigger fuss out of these things. And then until this moment in 2013, when I moved to Europe and suddenly I started to lose these privileges one by one, right? So suddenly I'm now 
in the darker shade of the color, right? Not in the lighter anymore. I belong to the Arabic Muslim community in Europe, and I started to see things totally different. And I think that's where I acquired this this skill of seeing the bigger picture because I basically wore both hats. It really resonates with me, Amr, as a transgender woman, because when I was presenting male and living, trying to live life as a male, I was aware intellectually of the struggles of other people. But uh, like you, I was like, it can't be that bad. It can't be that bad. And uh, then when I transitioned, I was like, yep, it's worse. It's actually worse. That's an interesting segue into one of the points that you made in, in, in one of your emails about the tendency where the industry like decontextualizes everything that comes from so you know anything social and makes it feel like it's an isolated piece of software. So I'd love to get into that because I think you have I think I think there's a point there and lo- would love to learn more about your perspective on that. Yeah, sure. I think that we as software engineers, we have a massive tendency to remove context out of software, right? And that's that's natural when you speak about software. We want to build, we want to follow the single responsibility principle all the time. We want to have one class that does one thing and it's isolated from everything else, right? We want to have totally agnostic services. I, I don't want my service to be dependent on a platform or a technology or a language or whatsoever, right? You want to be able to be fluid and flexible because you are always changing and maintainable. And out of this thing came this tendency to the software engineering and the tech world in general to think that everything applies the same rule, which is not true, right? Social aspects Mm -hmm. does not work like this. You cannot remove context when you speak about racism, for example. You cannot say, oh, well, uh, racism against white people is exactly racism against black people. It's not because there is context there. That context is so important. Someone I just found tweeted today an article kind of tearing into a piece I'd written about meritocracy. Their argument basically came down to, well, it's just code. And code divorce, you know, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter your social situation. It doesn't matter if you're in a marginalized group. Code is code. What would you say to people who have that opinion, Amr? Well, I mean, I, I, I totally understand where that effect came from, right? Because I, I'm, I'm still an engineer. I totally understand where this opinion comes from. I totally see where it roots out. But I just want to tell them that, trust me, I'm your colleague. I'm a person that is smart enough, or I hope you see that point, that I'm your colleague. And when I'm telling you that there is a problem in that aspect, there is a problem in that aspect. It's impossible that all of us are just like creating a fuss out of nothing. I am telling you that it's not just code. I am telling you that many times I, I face obstacles just because of my color or because of my identity. So it's not just code for sure. Well, I mean, in whatever you do, I, I agree. I agree to that. Um, and also in whatever you do, you add like your own special sauce. And that special sauce is kind of a combination of your background, your experiences, right? So it can't be that we all have the same background and experiences. And that really bugs me when people always like try to lump things into, well, it's just code. Well, it's just this. Well, it's just that. Like, no, it's not. We're nuanced. We're complex, you know, individuals. And we bring that to whatever we do, right? Which is what makes us fantastic. I maybe would like to add like an example because I remember when I mentioned something in Yoroku presentation that was mentioned by Coraline about always feeling that I have to do 10 times more effort than a fellow mm-hmm. white European to achieve the same result. Someone told me like, okay, like, I don't believe this. I believe it's just your code and this whatever, the same narrative that you were talking about. And I just wanted, like at this moment, I had this thought in my head. It was said to me by my white male manager at some point, right? Like he just put me down in a one-on-one and he said, listen, man, you are a brown person. 
your face looks a bit scary to people, so you need to put more effort to deliver the same message when I do. So he said that actually, like, clearly, without even trying to, you know, put a facade on the top of that, he stated that fact clear and honest. That really resonates as a person of color as well. I mean, that's been in the industry. I've been in the industry for over 20 years, and it's something that I faced. And I think at this point in my life, I, I continue to face it. But, you know, you it burns you out after a while. You think, why am I still here? You know, I, I texted my friend the other day and was like, maybe I should, like, go back to doing hair or something. I don't know. Like, learn how to do hair. I don't, just so that I can have peace of mind. But then I realized, like, standing on the shoulders of giants, I guess, and having to kind of push forward. But it's really tough. And it's really tough when our, you know, white male or and or female counterparts or non-binary counterparts that do have privilege kind of don't understand how challenging it is for us to be in this industry and don't care to understand. So I totally get you. <laughs> yeah. Perhaps maybe the, the, the thing that also resonates to your question earlier, Christina, about the similarities or the parallels between software and the whole topic we are talking about. One analogy that I always like to mention is the, the amount of similarity between the concept of technical debt and privilege, actually. So if you think about it, I mean, you just, I'm pretty sure everyone that listens to us now or probably all, everyone in this industry has to deal with a legacy code base all the time. And, and when you think about what does it mean a legacy or what does it mean technical debt, it's just some people that like non-intentionally, because of a reason of business or because of uninformed decisions or because they were just following some hype, they introduce some mistake or they introduce something that we need to put some effort in the future to get to uh, fix it, right? And technical debt never stops you from shipping. You shouldn't be rewriting your software every week, right? You should be try to be mindful while you're thinking about how to ship further. So you always have to be mindful about it, right? You cannot also ignore technical debt. And for me, this is exactly the same thing of privilege, right? So I'm not blaming you uh, because your ancestors caused this power imbalance that we have at the moment, but I'm telling you that you have to be mindful of that. And I'm telling you that you have to still move forward, but still think about the past, right? And still think about how would you fix the problems of the past? And how would you make sure not to introduce further power imbalance? That's amazing. I love yeah. that analogy. I'm really excited by interest, like metaphors that bring things across disciplines and, uh, that I, that's a really good one. I think that that will probably bring the point home more to people than a lot of ways that we end up talking about these sorts of issues. It's kind of interesting that in order to get through to engineers, we have to use metaphors that draw on their common experience as engineers to make them understand the cultural and social aspects of what marginalized people go through. That seems a shame, but also at the same time, it's brilliant. Honestly, to be honest with you, I don't really see it as a sh like as a shameful thing. I believe that we are humans, and it all goes down to our ego at the end. It all goes down to our like self worth and 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 feeling good about ourselves. And sometimes we 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 fail to understand things from the other side, even though we try. As I mentioned, like I was really a sympathetic person. I was I have been always um, a politically active person in every sense, but I just never could see the point from the other side. Uh, and I just needed someone to try to bring it closer to me using these analogies. Amr, um, when we met um, last year, you told me a little bit about what it was like for you. And you mentioned you mentioned losing privilege when you moved to Europe. But you also uh, mentioned to me that there was privilege involved with the mechanics of you getting to Europe. Would you care to, to share that? Definitely. I think... 
that if you think about it, we are software engineers, right? And and this is I consider this one of the privileges in the current context of the world. The privilege we have is the ability to move anywhere we want, find a job in less than two, three days. I, I'm 100% sure that 99% of the people in our audience are super easily uh, finding jobs, right, whenever they want, because it's a candidate-driven market. And if you think about it, I come from a country that has uh, more than 70,000 political arrests or political prisoners at the moment. And honestly, when I look around me, it's only software engineers who manage to escape <laughs> this so that just gave us even a free pass to be able to be more outspoken than the rest of our people, because we could say whatever we want, and then we could escape jail while the rest of people are not. The same concept is existing here in Europe, or, or I'm not sure, I'm pretty, pretty sure it's the same in the US, right? Uh, I always think about it within the scope of my company, or the scope of any company I work for. I should speak for people in, in back office jobs, I should speak for people in logistics jobs, because... I know that they are, from the perspective of a corporate, they are more more or less like replaceable people, so they wouldn't mind firing them. But I know that they would think twice before firing a software engineer because it's very expensive for them to lose that at the moment. So uh, we have to use these privileges as software engineers, I believe. I think that's a privilege that you accumulate over time. I think that uh, someone who's very early in their career, it would not be as safe for them to speak up. But as we get more senior... We have the ability to speak up with less consequences. And that, that is a responsibility that I think a lot of people don't recognize that they have and that they're not using fully. I can think of like multiple people in our industry who are very senior, who are very well respected, who are considered thought leaders, even though I hate that term, who simply don't talk about any issues facing marginalized people at all. And they may privately sympathize, but they're not using their platforms. They're not using that privilege to try and make things better for other people. And I find that so frustrating. To me, if you're not doing that, you're not doing your job. Do you think it's because they, they believe that they don't they don't see privilege or they don't believe in that? They just believe. I find a lot of folks feel that. You know, I can, if I can do it, anyone can. It doesn't matter. You know, I have a hidden disability and and I still made it. I'm still successful, right? So they, they look at the world that way. I think some people, when they hear talk about privilege, they take it as a personal attack on mm. their own skills. If you say that you are where you are in part because of privilege, that makes them feel like, well, no, that's not true. I worked really hard. And mm -hmm. it's not a matter of not having worked hard. It's a matter of not having to face the same struggles as people with less privilege and, frankly, playing on easy mode. Right. Exactly. I honestly cannot agree more because specifically this thing is very important. I think that we need to identify two kinds of people that are not aware of these things, right? The people who are intentionally, uh, let's say, fundamentally racist people, fundamentally oppressive people, fundamentally alt-right supporters in, in a sense, right? People who are opposing any kind of change. But there is also a major sector of people that are not aware enough, right? They, they just don't know. They don't see. They, they, they are not capable of doing this. And honestly, the reason I'm here today or the reason I do such a presentation at conferences or the reason I try to go to meetups or write whatever is just to get through to the second group, right? Because the first group, my purpose is just to make them uncomfortable. 
I, I honestly don't want to reach out to those people. I mean, without with all due respect, I don't want to change an opinion of a guy that that believes by nature I am a less person than him. So already that person is out of the story. But about those more influential people, I also think that inside them they have this deep unfaced thoughts of not really believing what we say still so again it's exactly the same situation that i started the episode with or what Coraline was speaking about they still sympathize but they are not deeply convinced uh, wow yeah, i think people end up like in this situation where you sort of realize maybe there's some differences in someone else's experience but still you don't really see it as deeply like you were describing like you don't really get that full experience of what it's like to be a person of color or a, a gender that isn't as privileged. And I think part of that is just the preponderance of everyday experience, where if you're a part of the privileged class, you don't see any of those differences because all the defaults are set to your defaults. Mm -hmm. And so you just go through and you think everyone's experience is the same as yours. And until you can either experience that flip, like you described, Amr, where you're suddenly not on the privileged side of things or like what I've tried to do is just listen to the stories and the experiences of, of the people around so that they can tell me what that's like. Cause I, I'm not going to experience that. Um, just slowly using that to, to break down that feeling of, Oh, well, this is just how the world works and it's all fine. You just, you get through on your own merits and, and everything's fine. But it's definitely a long process to sort of undo that conditioning because it starts from probably from infancy where you just like as a male, you're treated differently as a baby. And that affects how you interact with the world and how you think, you know, how adventurous you can be and things like that. I was just reading some psychology research on that. And so I think it's really like the process of getting through to people to convince them that, that those differences are there, I think, is the tricky part. Amar, do you have any strategies for making the case to people with privilege who are open to learning but aren't learning on their own? One of the things I really try to use from time to time is, is as I said, like you, you should like bring the conversation more and more often. But I also you should always try to find things that attracts those people to this conversation in terms of what interests those people, right? Uh, you might find, uh, uh, let's say, a person that's that's having really interest in environmental change. And then you try to draw the, the parallels. You try to say like, okay, you know that uh, it is the same white privilege that caused this in the past. It all comes from the same origin. Or you might find someone... I don't know, interested in, in just technology and, and its, and its development, right? And for me, I put a lot of effort into seeing how much diversity actually impacts the output of our software as well, right? Not just like in an, an ethical sense, because I, I, of course, believe in the ethical sense, but you need to find these very pragmatic ways to talk to people who don't care about the ethical part of it. For example, one of the examples I already also mentioned that to Coraline before, and I mentioned that in my presentation before, is a common, very common mistake we do as software engineers when we build very normal web, web applications. Like if I ask every one of you, how would you model a user in a web application? What would be the fields of the database? Like I'm pretty sure 99% of the people always answer with having a first name and a last name, right? <laughs> and like surprisingly, I don't have a last name. There are like 100 million Egyptians that don't have last names, right? So, so when you do this, you're making a void product. This is a product that's not achieving its goals because if you're building a product that's supposed to operate in Egypt, then you lost the market. 
you created a, a very un, ununderstandable case, right? So this issue of my last name, for example, has been a massive problem since I moved to Europe. It might seem very trivial to people, but for me, it's like every single thing I have to go through the process of which last name should I use because I don't have this one and, and so on. That practicality has also affected things here in the U.S. even with the midterm elections that just that we just had last year. There was a, a software program that the federal government encouraged states to use to clean up their voter rolls. And the programmers of the system insisted on implementing an algorithm whereby name matches had to be exact. And if the name matches were not exact, then people were actually prevented from voting. And people with special characters in their names – People who don't have last names, people who have multiple names, you have to remember in what context you use what name or face disenfranchisement and face all kinds of other struggles in society. But it actually like had a definite effect on voting rolls. One of the statistics I saw, it was from one particular state. And because of the name matching algorithm, 30,000 voters um, were flagged as suspicious, as potentially fraudulent. And uh, the researchers who dug into the algorithms found that there was actually one person out of 30,000 who, when you removed the name restrictions, may have been a fraudulent registration out of 30,000 that were flagged. Wow. Well, I mean, that's that's very surprising. But at the same time, this is also relating back to your, your, your talk about uh, meritocracy, right? Because... This is not a question of merit here. The person who wrote this software maybe was like very well intended and maybe was the best developer ever, right? Maybe it was he, he or she or they were very good software engineers, but they cannot see this issue because they don't face it themselves and none of the, none of the people in the team can see this. This is natural, right? Like this is a, a very basic cognitive bias. This is this uh, false consensus cognitive bias. Well, people cannot see what other people see. You wouldn't be able to think about all these possibilities all the time. That's why diversity contributes to having a non-void product. Because if you if they had one person in that team that had a, a special character in their name, he or she or they would have probably thought of that. Right? They would have probably said, why don't we think of, <laughs> of special characters? Because now my name wouldn't count. Yeah, I think you make a really interesting point there. You just described that person as maybe they're the, the really, really good programmer. They're the best programmer. But... I don't think we could call them the best programmer if they can build a system that's broken as fundamentally as that one is. But but yet, as software engineers, we sort of tend to think there's this absolute scale disconnected from all the social impact about how good a programmer you are that is actually harmful. Okay, yeah, I totally agree with this. I meant it in the perspective of the common software engineering yeah. world nowadays, yeah. right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah, the code review was, was shining... Everyone loved the way it was implemented. It was a very elegant regex, and and yet it, it failed really well. Yeah, <laughs> and disenfranchised thirty thousand people in one state. Yeah, how can we make the point? Like when you, I mean, you brought up the you know the importance of diversity, but what I'm noticing is that these conversations are geared more around like that checkbox and these organizations saying, yeah, we have you know 
we believe in diversity and inclusion. We hired a diversity and inclusion, I don't know, C-suite executive, for example. But I think that we're still missing, to Coraline's point, like we're still missing these valid use cases and valid examples of why diversity matters in building, right, software or when building software. So like, do you have any recommendations as far as you know, as a community, how can we get better at this? How can we not say you need diversity and inclusion and say, well, listen, this is what you're missing, right? Like if you don't have that, or if you fail to include that as part of the conversation. I mean, we are mostly all part of engineering teams. And uh, and I think it's, it's, it's per use case. I'm pretty sure if every one of us dug deep into their product, they will find a use case that they can bring out to their team. For example, I work in fashion technology and I always keep bringing out, because fashion technology is super binary when it comes to gender. I mean, they just treat everything as just men and women and they don't see any other genders on earth, right? So I have to bring out this every single time we there is a mention of gender. You have to make sure to like go to this pull request, make sure to decline it and make sure to block things and also like try to do as much as possible is to push the like companies not just in technology-wise, but companies on an organizational level to contribute to bigger things, but at the same time, make sure that they understand why are they doing this. When you mentioned hiring a diversity or having a diversity um, expert in the company, one thing I really dislike as a person of color in Europe, when a company has a, a diversity expert or they have some sort of a diversity quota, but they don't really understand why do they have this. Right. So that ends up in them treating us more like monkeys in the zoo, Mm -hmm. uh, more like people we would like to bring in to have their photo in our website and Mm -hmm. show off that we have diversity, but they have absolutely no understanding of what they're really doing. Right. So, so I cannot think of anything we can do now except just being vocal about it and actually fight because honestly, it's a struggle. It's not going to be an easy thing because if it was an easy thing, it would have been solved already. Right. It's a struggle that we all have to go through. And I, I can totally see how uncomfortable it is to be this, you know, the annoying person in the office that keeps fighting on every social thing. But honestly, it's also not a choice for me. Not a choice for me because I don't do that because I am like super happy to do this or uh, because as they always say, I like playing the victim card. And no, it is more actually because it's my safety on stake here. I can be at any moment attacked in the street or, or you know. It is not just a simple thing. That's powerful. So how do you stay sane? Like, what do you do for fun? <laughs> Even though it's part of your survival, like, I'm sure that, like others um, in tech, we all at some point feel burnout. So how do you, like, reinvigorate yourself and, and re-energize and find that passion again, right? Yeah. I think me personally, I am a person of multiple interests. So uh, since I was a kid, I always had this ability to be on many fronts and never get lost in it. Honestly, sometimes I get burnt out and that's natural. And then you just take a holiday, go watch a movie, go have some hobbies or whatever. I personally am super interested in art. So I spend some time trying to learn about movie making because that's my next job after leaving the technology world. (laughs) Or I don't know. (laughs) So I don't know, like you, you have to find a way, like at the end also, you have to care about your, your, your well-being, right? And that's what I mentioned. It's all about our egos, all about ourselves. And yeah, at the first place, you have to feel good. If you are tired at some point of raising your voice, it's fine. Take a rest. Like, you know, I, I'm not blaming people who are not fighting, actually. I totally understand how is that, where is that coming from? But as long as you have this energy, make sure to use it because I'm telling you that there are other people that would love to have such such an opportunity to use it, but they can't, right? 
So in, in my country, in, or even here, there are people that are not software engineers, that they, are, they don't have the ability to speak up. They don't have the ability, like me now, to be on an American podcast speaking to an international audience. They don't have this ability, right? So we have to use this thing to channel our, our opinion, right? We, we really need to do that. Amar, have you had success in finding allies in your workplace? Definitely. Honestly, uh, my current workplace is, is very comfortable in that sense. I selected it specifically uh, on that aspect, actually. So, <laughs> so I mean, because my previous experience was really tough, uh, even though my previous company, they have, you know, the diversity expert and they uh, spend a lot of money in supporting diversity initiatives, but it was the perfect model of what I'm saying, that they were treating people as monkeys and do. Um, so this time I did exactly the opposite. I mean, my, all my discussions before uh, before the recruitment was just about this concept. So let's speak. What would you do if I post such a, a debatable political post on Slack? What would be what would be your reaction to this? For me, also one thing that was very noticeable is that the head of engineering, which is number two in the technical uh, thing, is a brown person, uh, is a non-straight person. So for me, that was already a marker that something is is correct here because honestly especially in germany it is very rare to find a non-white male straight manager it is very rare you have no idea so you can have a lot of employees but never on managerial positions i want to dig into that a little bit amar you gave one example of a question you asked i do a lot of mentoring and um i try to encourage people especially in their early jobs their first few jobs to really understand that an interview is two-way. Not only is the company interviewing you to try and determine what kind of employee you're going to be, but you as the interviewee are evaluating the company to see how comfortable, how safe it will be for you, especially as a marginalized person. So I get asked all the time, well, how do I find it out? Like, what questions do I ask? Do you have other examples of specific questions that you asked during that interview process? Yeah, I actually, I think I have a list somewhere. Maybe I will post it as a blog and link it later. So I have a list of like around 15 questions that I usually ask the companies. Like usually the question of what is your demography, right? Like how many women, how many men, how many binary people do you have? How many non-gender people do you have? And if they don't know the answer, that's already a marker that they didn't try, right? I, I would totally appreciate the honest answer of, as you know, the, the industry has a problem. So we have a problem, but we are trying to work on it. We are not totally diverse. We have this and that, but that already shows that these people thought about it, right? Not just ignored it. Uh, and yeah. you'll be surprised, actually, because many times you would be talking to like HR people and they wouldn't know the answer to this question. In very major organizations, they really don't know the answer to this question sometimes. Um, the other questions that I usually ask is about contributions to the community in technical sense, right? So what is your stance on open source? What is your stance on technical events support? And I ask about their opinions of diversity quotas. And then just a swipe of your eyes is really enough. You know, you always go in, into the office. You would just realize how many, <laughs> how diverse is the company by being there, right? Uh, especially for me, it's very clear when I enter this, like, only white com- white people, white males company that, like, there are two women sitting in one office and, like, this brown guy in the corner and then the rest of the company is just the same look. So that's already a no-go for me. I don't know. Those are the ones I can think of at the moment. I can later... Try to write that blog post and send it to you. I would really appreciate that. Thank you, Emma. 
Yeah, I would too. <laughs> that would be awesome. <laughs> it's not as critical for me as far as my safety goes to have a, a company that's like that, but it's it's also the sort of company I want to work for. So being able to evaluate those things, even as someone who's going to make it less diverse by being there, those are all good questions that I want to be asking. I honestly think that oppression is as toxic to the privileged side as the underprivileged side, right? So privilege is an intersectional concept, and I'm a male, right? I'm still a straight male, I'm still a straight, straight cisgender male, but I know that sexism damages me as much as, not as much, of course, but it damages me as well, right? It, it, it has its side effect on me, especially when you are trying, and I never call myself a lie, but when you are trying to achieve the stance of being an ally, right? <laughs> so I would never give myself the, 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 the privilege of being called an ally, but when you try to, to act as an ally, it's really toxic. It's really hard to be a male trying to support in these things, right? So it, it has the downsides. Can you elaborate on that a little bit, Amar? Like, how does it affect you? When you're the person in a position of privilege, how does sexism affect you as a as a straight cisgender male? I can talk about it a little bit, just in a really simple example. I, w- I went through the unconscious bias uh, test. Um, I, we could dig up the URL for that, um, but it basically shows you like images of different people and and words describing them. Like this is a female and this si- compared to scientist. The amount of time you spend like being able to compare how associated the words are indicates whether you have think that maybe women aren't cut out to be scientists. And uh, these are very unconscious biases that obviously I consciously try and counteract, but through taking this test, I realized that I have these unconscious biases that like by default, my brain is going to automatically say, Oh, that woman probably isn't a scientist. Even if I'm at a meeting of scientists and half the people there are women. And so Knowing that, I can now counteract it every time I notice my brain making that default assumption. And so I can say, wait a minute, wait, 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 stop that, stop that assumption. Let's, let's flatten everything out and, and reassess like the audience that I'm looking at or whatever. Like that's just one, one very simple example where like if I wasn't aware that I was doing that and I allowed that to just influence my thinking and the way I treated the people I was interacting with and by just assuming all the women there weren't scientists that that would be a problem for me because I would be limiting the people that I could have good conversations with or the people that I could hire into my science team if, if I was doing such a thing or things like that. Like I would be just automatically dismissing all these people from the contributions that they could be making. So that's, I think, one simple but fairly clear-cut example. Yeah, and if you're devaluing people even unconsciously, that's going to affect the work that you do because you're not going to be learning from them. You're not going to be tapping into their expertise. You're not going to be tapping into their life experiences because of those default assumptions, right? Or I'll be designing my scientific studies where all the participants are men, so we don't get any useful data on how whatever the thing is is affecting women and non-binary people. And so, therefore, it's it's really skewed, and then we bring the thing to market. It doesn't succeed. Like, there's so many side effects that can come out of that. What I'd like to point out here is that I don't think that this is necessarily like a, you know, white or male privileged problem. I think that part is a human problem. You know, I feel like we're always pushing the blame to one side versus saying, I think it's something that we all should look at, including people of color, non-binary folks, because it's a human problem. I mean, there are times where, you know, when I've caught myself being biased, right? And I'm a woman of color. So I think it's just, you know, something to to think about. 
Yeah, the bias is definitely universal. The uh, yeah. d- the difference is the power differential, though. Um, yes. I don't mind being Agreed. more critical of cisgender, heterosexual white males because they're the intersection that has power over yes. over more people. But your point, your point is amazing, Christina. Everyone does have that bias, and it does affect everyone. I think it's a fundamental problem with the way that we're wired and the way we're socialized. We are yep. definitely products of our society, and we're also products of our evolution. These are things that, as you point out, everyone should be working on. Because we are currently in an, in an unnatural state, right? We are currently in an unbalanced time. So when we speak about, I don't know, differences of people that doesn't have this power imbalance, then you can prioritize problems that are way less important, <laughs> right? So, so there are things like I would never, ever bring out just because I know that this is so trivial compared to what women are going through. <laughs> so I would never just bring out these things, right? Because it's so trivial at the moment. Because the, this state of being unnatural, of course, it's way, way, way harder on the other sex or it's way, 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 way harder on, 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 on everything, uh, on everyone that's underprivileged, but it still has some impact on the privileged person. Amara, you mentioned not wanting to call yourself an ally. That's a position that I've seen very self-aware people take. And people who are a little less self-aware have no issue with calling themselves an ally. Could you go into the why of the importance of not calling yourself an ally and not giving yourself that title? Yeah, so I was saying, like, when you do this, you are basically contributing to the same problem, right? You are actually taking the right of a person by calling you, yourself that, oh, no, I am on your side. Like, don't force this on, on underprivileged people. Wait for them to call you on a lie. And I actually wish for that. I When I talk to a, a woman friend of mine or some person from the LGBT community, I just sit and learn. I never try to mansplain or, in any sense. Like, I should just sit there and just learn because, as I said before, it is impossible. However hard you try, it is impossible to see the experiment. The, experiences when you live them firsthand you try as much as you can right and and it's a it's a thing that takes practice and the more practiced you are you get better at it but you can never live it 100 percent. and honestly we we grew up with these biases it's so hard to get rid of even how much you try and and i still do mistakes on daily basis right and i still get lectured on daily basis by my friend by by my friends and they're like sit down I need to call you out on something because that was wrong. You should have said that. And I totally appreciate this, right? And I and I would never, ever, ever in my life call myself an ally to someone. The people should call you an ally. You should never call yourself an ally. I'd argue it's not even an, a thing you can be. It's a thing that you do. Uh. Yeah, it's continuously evolving and continuously evaluated. It's not like you get your ally trophy and then you're good for life. And I have to be very, very honest with you. 99% of the cases when a person says a lie, that person keeps hitting you with microaggressions. Mm. <laughs> like, like you cannot imagine. Usually the person that says I'm an ally is, is the most, like the person with the highest count of microaggressions per minute, you know? You brought up a good point about like, you know, some of your friends and, and just close counterparts calling you out when you make a mistake. I'm very much against this like call out culture that we've seen over the past couple of years, especially with social media. I think obviously it's complicated and there are situations where you do have to publicly, but there are other situations where if you know the person, like I don't necessarily agree with calling the person out. But again, it depends on on the situation. How do you feel about calling someone out that maybe makes a mistake, uh, makes a mistake on social media? And do you think that that actually helps or hurts? 
I actually think this is like the most important, let's say, um, learning or discussion that we have been having as uh, as more, let's call, progressive people in the previous couple of years, right? This exact conflict. And I think the conflict roots from this. We as people, we, at least the majority of progressive people, believes in the idea of not vindictive punishments, right? You don't want to punish people just to have vengeance. You want to have punishment to reform or to improve people, right? So maybe the only side that makes calling people out uh, scary for, for many people is the idea that it's it has a bit of vengeance in it, right? But on the other side, as we said, we are not living in a natural state at the moment. We are living in a massive uh, power imbalance. And honestly, if there was another alternative, I would go for it. But there's mm-hmm. not. Right, so there is no possible way now to, let's say, punish Kevin Spacey for sexual harassment. <laughs> like, that wouldn't have been done in any sense. Like, what would have you done? Like, just went to the police, people would victim blame yeah, you. Yeah, it wouldn't have worked. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> people still victim blame you even when you call when you call someone out, right? So I, I just don't see an alternative. As I'm saying, maybe in lots of years when this power imbalance, when the situation gets better, yeah, that wouldn't be an appropriate thing. But in the current situation we have we have no other alternatives honestly i famously get into a lot of twitter battles with some prominent people in our industry in particular robert martin bob martin and uh i don't feel bad about calling him out first of all because he deserves you it teach repeatedly you teach me your uh, you teach <laughs> me all the- <laughs> i'm yeah. kidding guys. um but the main reason i call him out as opposed to working with him on a one-on-one basis to understand his mistakes is that he has such a tremendous platform. He has tens of thousands of followers. And when I call him out, it's not for him. It's for them. I want to show them that this person that they're idolizing is in fact very problematic. And I don't have the power to get them to change their mind, but maybe one of them does. I love that, actually. I love that perspective. Yep, I get it. Thank you for sharing that. And that's that's really especially working with like celebrities and people who have lots of followers, right? You 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 have no other option. You have to make use of this platform, and we have no other alternative. You just need to think about it this way. Yeah. So at the end of the show, we like to talk about what our reflections are, and these are the little things that we're going to take away and think about further, or or really new ideas that have really uh, interested us. And and for me, it's it's the uh, metaphor of of sexism and racism and cultural baggage being legacy code. Um, I, I think the metaphor fits so perfectly because it's something that was, you know, created by people before me, but that is affecting the way my life executes, right? The way my behaviors manifest and then the impacts that I'm having and thinking about it that way as something that you work against, that you make improvements to that you, that like, you know, it's probably impossible to throw out the whole thing and build a new culture up from scratch. Um, so we just have to do things in our daily releases that make changes so that the, these things get better and better over time. I really like that. I'm with you on that one. I love that. I'm going to have to replay that one back so that I can like write it down and put it on a sticky on my wall. <laughs> Another thing that resonated was Amir saying, just listen and learn. We have opinions. We want to try to understand and we fail to listen. So that was a big takeaway for me. But another big takeaway was just pushing organizations to contribute to bigger things, but making sure that they understand why they're doing it and not doing it blindly. That was um, two of many takeaways. One of the uh, phrases that you used a few times, Amr, really intrigues me. 
You said a few times that we're in an unnatural state. I'd never considered the fact that the power imbalances and the systems of oppression that we deal with on a daily basis are not natural. I think that's a great reminder that uh, this is a construct. This is something that we built up over time. And this is a consequence of decisions that have been made over the over the past thousands of years. But it's not a natural state. It's not the way things have to be. And we can return to a more natural state with being thoughtful and using our power and using our influence and trying to make a change. And uh, I really love that, that idea that that is the natural state, that equality is the natural state. And we need to return to that. Love that. Thank you. When I try to like always wrap up my thoughts, I always have this thing that comes up to my mind always, which is there is a common narrative uh, with people of privilege when they say, why do we need to discuss that these things that much? Why don't we just be nice to each other? Or things like, I'm so sick of talking about politics, or I'm so sick about these topics, diversity and privilege. And I think it's very important for me to like make this very bold, that the ability to have a politics-free life is a privilege on its own. <laughs> right? So your ability as, as, as a person of privilege to not care about things is a privilege. Uh, I am a person that, that, as I mentioned before, come from a, from a failed revolution where thousands of people are in arrest and thousands of people are dead. And as many of my friends, as a, as a quite young person, I'm still in my 20s even, having to go through these experiences my safety is really on stake. So when I fight about these things, I don't do it because I want to do it. I actually want to party and have fun as the rest of my generation. I do it because that is the only way to survive. Amar, it was a privilege to meet you last year, and I hope we get to spend more time together. I'm looking for an excuse to go to Berlin, so any uh, if you can help me out with that, that would be wonderful. Um, it has also been a privilege to speak to you today and get your perspective You uh, are an amazing person, and I look forward to seeing what you do next. Thank you so much for joining us today. 